Hi, welcome to North of 48. This is part two of A Life for Peace, an interview with Meta Spencer. And we're joined by Professor Ann Lee, who taught at Norwich University in UCLA and writes a column for the Daily Kos, KOS. Hi, Meta. Hi, Ann. Nice to meet you. Good to meet you, too. What, um, what did you teach? Um, history. Oh, yes. And, and your special... Among other things. Yeah, your special historical interests? Uh, modern design, actually, is uh, what I generally taught at UCLA, but I, I went into something else uh, further on. I, oh. I have an interest in uh, geography uh, um, and information science. But anyway, that's uh, enough of me. Let's ask about you. <laughs> I read with interest your uh, your piece at uh, uh, in the International Journal from 2011 on uh, on Russian uh, authoritarianism and uh, the hope for democracy. And I, I just democracy is a big deal these days, as you probably know, and uh, <laughs> and perceive in in the turmoil in the states. Mm -hmm. um, it it I've, I I. I'm going to quote you tonight when I when I put out my little piece on Ukraine, and um, because it is about democracy and it's about, uh, about promoting democratization, and and I I was just interested in finding a little bit out a little bit more about your feelings about the current situation in Russia, about because oh, yes. uh, you noted how uh, Gorbachev went perhaps too slowly in in terms of. Uh, democratization and obviously it has a, a a kind of relationship to peace and at, at the end you note that uh, Putin probably would have still won uh, we're at this current situation where Putin still is in charge and peace is well we're not exactly drowning in peace uh you know we need to uh, uh, we have an endowment uh, for democracy in the United States but the people over there, uh, Ann Applebaum is great, but uh, Elise Stefanik, it's probably a, a courtesy appointment, but <laughs> Trumpist uh, Elaine, uh, Elise uh, Stefanik is also on their board. So it, I, 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 I don't uh, know who that is. Who? Oh, she's the head of uh, or she's the uh, majority whip for uh, uh, the GOP. She's like uh, second or third in command of the GOP in the House. Uh -huh. Okay. And she's very, very pro-Trump, uh, uh, for whatever reason. And mm -hmm. so, the the prospects for an endowment of democracy being actually democratic seem kind of, kind of weird. Um, and I know that this is the same thing in Russia as well. And and I wanted to get your sense of where democracy is in in, in terms of uh, that uh, regime change might occur in Russia. Uh, partially because of Ukraine, for example, and, and where you feel peace peace is these days, considering how we're not quite moving toward it, but uh, away from it. Well, first of all, I think democracy itself is in trouble. I don't think it's just in Russia. I think that the uh, democracies all around the world are having difficulty. You already mentioned Trump. I mean, th th that's a perfect example of the fact that uh, no matter where you are, uh, many, many countries that are democratic or have always been beacons of democracy are uh, in, in danger. And I, I frankly, I think it's entirely possible Trump could be reelected. So that's that's a bad, bad sign, frankly. Yes. Um, but 
having said that, it's certainly true that that what's going on in Russia is a whole lot worse. I mean, there's just no comparison between the uh, the amount of freedom that's still available in the U.S. Um, and and of course in in better better governed countries such as Canada or some of the Scandinavian countries and so on that there's certainly uh, we have we have more uh, real uh, opportunities uh, to straighten ourselves out. And I think, you know, for many years, I was I was going to Europe and and I was involved in the Helsinki Citizens Assembly for a long time. And then, so I was going to Europe about three or four times a year uh, to meetings and to studying people, interviewing people around in Eastern Europe a lot. But mostly I, I went, I was in Russia for, I, I don't know how many times I've been to Russia, but you know, sometimes staying several months. Um, although I never learned Russian, so I, you know, I'm, my knowledge of Russia is is just that of a peace activist going around talking to other people who uh, would like to be peace activists, <laughs> and so I, I do have those contacts, or I had many many contacts. Which, by the way, I put those interviews on my website. Um, the uh, Russian Peace and Democracy website. Yes, I put the great. transcripts and even some of the um, uh, audio tape uh, versions of of conversations with extremely high level uh, Russian uh, people. So during the Gorbachev years, I had excellent contacts. I I can't explain why, but I, I did. Um, but uh, you know, once Putin came in, I, there was is well, once Yeltsin came in, I I didn't. It was it was a highly democratic in in the sense of a lot of freedom, but not uh, uh, Yeltsin had no idea how to organize um, a, a a reasonable uh, constitution. With uh, Gorbachev had been developing a a a plan uh, for many years and. Uh, uh, with uh, just a handful of people, uh, they've been developing uh, transition to uh, a real uh, democracy. And had he been able to continue doing it, they had uh, the chairs set up for the new union treaty. The people were ready to come and uh, endorse or uh, access this uh, this treaty, which would have created a new Soviet Union. Uh, with more autonomy for the different uh, provinces or the republics and so on. And had that happened, I think it would have been, it had some real promise. But of course it was, it was ditched by these guys who got drunk in a <laughs> hunting lodge someplace in Belarus and, and, and uh, it just made it impossible. So, uh, so I think, you know, I was, I was very pessimistic during the Yeltsin years, even though People, it was, you know, people were flourishing uh, in terms of, they, they felt they had a lot of freedom, but um, I didn't feel that it was being uh, created a, a, a governance system that that would have any staying power. And and with, with Putin, it, it, yeah, I never did have any, any confidence. But as of now, it's just really tragic that the, uh, you know, if, if people are scared to even talk on the phone, uh, mm -hmm. uh, the, the, I, I don't dare call old friends because I don't want to, you know, I don't know how they feel. Some of them would be glad to talk on the phone and take the risk, but uh, many of them would not. So I think the big, the the challenge that we face now 
is, you know, when this war ends and who knows how it's going to end, Putin's not going to be in power forever. And he may not, he, he may be replaced by somebody who's just as bad or it's hard to believe there's anybody worse, but possibly. And, and uh, so we don't know the outcome, but there will at some point be some change or some opportunity for people. But all of these men, there have been, uh, well, um, almost a million of the people who would have been drafted or conscripted who've left the country and are you know, running around the world trying to find a place that they can now call home hmm. um, settle more or less. And uh, and they are not yet, I think, really uh, able to think seriously. They're they're trying to just get on their feet mostly. And besides, they don't have a habit of of uh, talking about political matters. So I don't see uh, that much of a conversation yet. But I think what has to happen next after the war, uh, whatever outcome it may be is a very serious discussion among the expatriate Russians. And it's not just these men who've left to avoid conscription, but there are other Russians who had already left and who are still leaving, uh, families and so on. And uh, a really serious discussion about how what kind of government they want. And I would love to see it informed by um, the kinds of conversations that I think take, need to take place even in democracies about how we need to, I think the international order has been uh, sort of turned upside down by Putin uh, and, and that, you know, the United Nations is not effective now and needs a complete, a number of real changes in order to have a, a, a easy, even halfway stable and predictable and workable international order. So I think we all need to talk about how to fix our democracies and improve them. The Russians have the farthest to go, but but we all, I think, actually need to think seriously about the democracy as a work in progress. And we haven't got there yet. There's no, we haven't reached a final uh, excellent uh, version of how to govern ourselves globally. Yes, I agree. I, I think, uh... You know, there's a lot of uh, bridging, as as you've put it, uh, uh, as opposed to bonding uh, kind of civil society that uh, still needs to go on. And it's unfortunate that every day we we talk about whether uh, Ukraine will be democratic in, in the post-war period, much like whether Russia will be democratic in the post-war period. It's unfortunate that we have so much disinformation. I was curious whether you you found those uh, that that formative period. Uh, uh, the, is the dif- disinformation worse now than it was when you were looking at Gorbachev's period? The disinformation. Yes. Oh, I think so. Yeah, I think with, with Gorbachev, you had glasnost, you know, uh, openness, transparency, and um, you could say anything. Uh, and even during the Yeltsin period, you could say anything. I think there, there was plenty of freedom in that sense. It was a Wild West kind of society in, in Yeltsin's time, and the economy was in terrible shape, uh, uh, which is, you know, really what did it in. I mean, they, they just didn't 
they couldn't get the economy transition as as quickly as they needed to in order to keep set people satisfied. If they if they'd made a good easy, I don't think it would have ever been easy, but if they had made their transition to a market economy, which is what they were trying to do, um, in a in a quick way that was uh, didn't cause so much suffering. I think maybe Gorbachev's plan might have had a had a fair of a chance, um, but that didn't happen. Yes, but uh, I agree that um, it, it was really an interesting period because uh, I remember I, I've worked on projects where uh, there was some outreach from the. Uh, from the then Soviet Union to uh, um, thank you for global communication, and that was uh, really good. Um, mm -hmm. Walter, you're back. Uh, well, I am. I've been listening and watching, so I I appreciate that. Sorry about tag teaming you, Meta, but I, I find Professor Ann Lee really knowledgeable, and and I. What are you apologizing for? For leaving, but I was watching, <laughs> so. You didn't notice. Good. That means you were enjoying. Oh, it. I noticed, but I mean, I didn't. I wasn't grieving. <laughs> <laughs> you sound like my ex-wife now. Stop it. <laughs> um, I've known. I I was able. I don't know how I got. You know, but I could get into the Gorbachev Foundation and talk to anybody I wanted practically. So it was really wonderful, uh, and I I have. Um, uh, one of the men, his interpreter, is a very re remarkable man named Pavel Palaschenko. And um, now, of course, he he he's having to keep his head down, you know, because he's living in Russia as a Russian during this war. And, you know, how much can he say? Uh, he obviously knows that Gorbachev would have been horrified or did express horror before he died about the war. Uh, but you know these uh, the people who live in Russia now um, can't can't say much of anything. They they are mostly pretty quiet um, because they can go to prison. There's something like thirty, I believe I've I've read thirty thousand of them have been set, sentenced to prison for maybe fifteen years yeah. for saying things that you know against the war or are taken as criticism of the government or something. That's right. Yeah. And do you have any more questions, or are you good? Oh, I'm good. I just—it's uh, an honor to have uh, to have met you, Meta, um, and I'm uh, grateful that I found a really good paragraph on on democracy that I can use tonight in my uh, in my uh, piece on Ukraine. Okay. Well, we—I'd love to hear your thoughts about Ukraine because that one is breaking my head. You know. Oh, it, that's I think it's a, breaking everyone. That's everywhere. not an easy one. It's, it's the hardest moral dilemma that I have found, I don't even know when I could think of anything as challenging. I suppose World War II, if I, if I had been a pacifist in World War II, I probably would have supported the war. You know, if I, I would have come around to saying, yes, you have to fight. Um, I don't know how many times since then I can think of that I feel that a war is something that can't easily be avoided now. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's a really painful thing for, I don't know how you feel, but, you know, I've been a peace activist full time. And, and, and the notion 
that um, that if they stopped right now, I think it would be very much to Putin's advantage. And he would take the opportunity to go ahead and build up and go on, take Moldova and God knows where, you know, the other Georgia, Abkhazia, so on. Wow. He would just keep going. And uh, I don't see any way, there's nothing in international law that enables us to arrest the man. You can call him a war criminal. And maybe in 15 years, somebody will turn him in and he'll be in the Hague and jail or something. But I don't think so. And it's not going to be now. And the main thing is that we need to, we need some way of international enforcing it, especially the international law against aggression. And he is an aggressor. And if somebody broke into your house, you would call the police and they would be on their way to interrupt him before he got through the front door. And the, you can't do that with, with an aggressor, a military aggressor. Nobody can stop him. What, and, what, and, you know, so we need some system of international governance so that at least when it comes to a, a, a aggression of the kind that he's doing, when the International Court of Justice made their ruling and said, stop right now, don't move another mu muscle. Of course, it didn't have any impact at all. He went right ahead. And, and there's no way to enforce their will. So, I, you know, I, I just think that that is a number one issue that has to be handled, that we have to have some system for making sure the international law gets enforced. No, no disagreement. Uh, it's unfortunate that this month uh, Russia is chairing the Security Council in the UN, so that makes it even more difficult. Uh, but I agree with you completely. It, it is about the international order and institutions in the international order and um, the relationship between the UN and NATO needs to be sort of worked out in a much clearer sort of way, for example. Mm -hmm. what, what also worries me is countries with nuclear arms uh, can go into other countries and try taking them over or beating them up. There's no mechanism. How do we stop that, right? Because everybody's worried about the, uh, you know, the, the missiles falling. So. Yeah, I mean, Russia is not the first country that yeah. has aggressed. We can have a look at, at Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. if, among, if we don't even want to think about Vietnam. I hear you. I hear you on that. And thank you very much. Uh, we're going to go you. to a question from uh, Joe, who is out in uh, España. He's out in Spain. And Hello, Joe. Whoops, let's get him on. There we go. Hello, Mata. Hey, Walter. Uh, thanks for joining us, Mata. Uh, I'd like to ask a question from the opposite end of the spectrum, not, not, not about the leaders, but the soldiers. Um, there's a lyric of the folk singer, Buffy St. Marie, that I've, I've never been able to get out of my head. The song, The Universal Soldier, he really is to blame. His orders come from far away, no more. They come from here and there, and you and me, and brother, don't you see? This is not the way we put an end to war. Do you remember that one? You know, it, it's so come up recently, and something I was involved with, I don't remember whether it was a talk show or what, but yes, somebody else uh, brought that up. I wasn't familiar with it before, but I went to 
I went on YouTube and listened to Buffy St. Marie singing that. Yeah, this came uh, out so around the Vietnam era. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, yeah, what is so, you, you think that, as I understand it, you disagree with me. Tell no, me no, no. No? The, no, I was wondering, do you have any thoughts about this very serious problem of, of soldiers? There's an endless supply of soldiers, and how do we reach this endless number of people before they become that universal soldier that that they're the cannon fodder that the leaders always use to just perpetuate war aren't um sorry joe aren't uh, <laughs> army people and soldiers now it's marketing they go into poor neighborhoods in the schools oh you they say hey poverty you, you draft yeah you don't have a life uh come come uh come work for us and see the world, right? Be all you can be. It's more than just that. It's more than just the poverty draft. Fair enough. Fair enough. You know, there is, we don't talk about this very much. I don't, I don't think we mention it much, but there is kind of a, there's kind of a sense that being a, a man involves testing your strength, testing your courage, seeing how, how tough you can be. And that this, this is a developmentally progressive thing that all young men should have. I think it's, it's true. All young people should have some challenge that is, is difficult and it can be rock climbing, hang gliding, uh, or just donating blood when you're scared of needles, but it it everybody needs a, um, the the challenge of knowing that you have a big important thing to do and you need to be part of contributing in some um, some way or doing something to overcome your own fears and and really master your own uh, slouchiness. And I think that this, that militarism draws on, on that, that there's, there's an attraction to being a, a macho uh, figure. Uh, and um, so I think we need, we need some alternative that, uh, system that is constructive. So people can, can test their strength by going on a, well, these uh, uh, camping trips where you, you just take a knife and a, a rope with you and see if you can survive or something, you know, and, and <clears throat> in the woods or something that tests your, your fortitude. Um, I think that, you know, you could, you could mobilize that motive to do constructive things. You know, could, we could, we need people who will, uh, who will go into disasters and help rescue people after the buildings collapsed on them and, and that sort of thing. We need people who are uh, who have a, a sense of wanting to prove to themselves that they have that kind of courage. That's a small part of it. But, you know, the, if you look at the pictures of people who were going off to drafted or conscripted to go off to fight in Ukraine, those were not those people. Those those guys getting on the bus, being you know sent off to to 
to the army were crying, <laughs> a lot of them, you know, uh, uh, they did not want to go and their families did not want to go. And, and you know, it was a choice of you go to prison or you go to war. And most families uh, have this notion, you know, well, we have to let our son go. So I, I think, you know, you can't, uh, a lot of people say, if we just bring up our children to be peaceful, teach them in kindergarten how to play together well, they'll grow up to be so peaceful that they'll not go to war. No, that, it doesn't matter how peaceful they are. If the army says, come and Uncle Sam points at you and says, you're, you're the man, come with me. Most guys will do it. And, and, and most you know, Russians will do it. Putin says, you come with me. Uh, and I think it's a, it's a governance issue. We have to have alternatives to war. Alternatives to uh, war at the at the level both of creating international law so that we know what the the outcome of a, a dispute is it's handled legally and um, and and not only that but non uh, non uh, nonviolence as as alternatives uh, to conflict um, I'm thinking you know at the time that the that Putin had all these uh, tanks and stuff surrounding Ukraine for several days or weeks. Um, and it, it looked like he was going to invade. I thought they would win. I thought the Russians would win uh, for sure in no time. And um, I, um, at that point, I, I thought, instead of just having everybody killed, why don't we, why, why wouldn't Zelensky, for example, say, okay, we can't stop you. You're going to come in. Well, come on in. But you will find that we are not going to cooperate with you. And we will not obey you. And there were there are all kinds of examples from World War II for you know Denmark and other countries where the Nazis went. And and they they could not get people to cooperate. So I think that they that the Russian army would simply not have been able to be an occupying army and make people do what they wanted them to do. Had the Ukrainians organized sufficiently to resist um, uh, commands. Um, and that's what I would have done. But once, once it started, um, you know, it's too late now. You can't do that now. And, and of course they chose to go ahead and and take a stand against Russia, and and you kind of have to certainly give them credit for courage in doing it. Um, anyway, that's my opinion. Is that I don't know if that speaks to what what you wanted an answer to. Yes, that, <clears throat> I was just struck that I I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and as a kid in the 80s, 70s, and the 80s, I was always struck by the adults either from uh, World War II veterans or Vietnam era veterans uh, defaulting to telling me I should join the military because it'll make a man out of me, mm -hmm. almost as if they were uh, wanting me to be complicit or 
feeling like uh, it's a way for them to justify their actions in in taking part in those, whether it was voluntarily or through through the draft. And I, I was always struck by that, and, and I really don't see how we get past that because of, of that the complicity aspect of, of the people serving and then the future how that affects future generations that are going into war but thank you well thank you joe very much for the question um we have another question from professor john um Meta, I'm going to disagree with you just a little bit on that. I'm not so sure um, the Ukrainians had a choice. Uh, like, it would have been nice with the protest and and obviously not cooperating with the Russians. But I, from what I read and stuff, I thought they were intent on uh, trying to get Zelensky and members of his government and outright capturing him, putting him in prison or something. So... It would have been nice, like the way Denmark did it, and and um, mm -hmm. I don't know if that was possible, but it's it's a good thought, and 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 thank you very much for for sharing that. Mm -hmm. And I I'm going to bring on, uh, if you don't mind, Professor John, who's another podcast uh, compadre, who's been on the show, and uh, he has he has a he has a question for you, and we'll get you to unmute John, if you don't mind. He he's not technically good, but he speaks well. <laughs> well, first of all, I'd like to thank you very much, uh, uh, Mana Spencer, for uh, joining us here. Uh, we're honored to to have you here, and uh, also to say that I agreed with um, just about everything you said. Uh, where where I would. Uh, beg to differ would be on your assessment of whether Putin would uh, at this point try to invade other countries. Um, I think the country being, being what? What's the that? West? Sorry, I didn't hear you. Your country, which country? Oh, no, that, that Putin would invade other countries. Besides oh, you Ukraine, would, you don't think he would invade Moldova or Georgia or <laughs> um... not not at this point uh, for the reason uh, that this war has been disastrous for Putin. It's been disastrous for Russia. Uh, it it has revealed Russia to be essentially a paper tiger with nuclear weapons. Uh, you know, th their performance in this war, fortunately, uh, has been pretty pathetic, you know, that such a, a large country with so much, so many more resources than Ukraine uh, could be stopped uh, by Ukraine. Yes, with, with assistance from the U.S. and so forth. But uh, no one thought that this would last more than a couple of weeks mm -hmm. uh, when it initially happened. Uh, so I don't think that Russia is eager to engage in invading other countries, which would elicit even more of a militaristic response from NATO or from uh, uh, other countries. So I, I don't think this is... Um, like uh, like World War II, 
in the sense that uh, uh, Russia is not the equivalent of Germany in in the 1940s. And uh, the, the risk here is that because they are a nuclear armed country, uh, that we could end up if Putin thought he was um, cornered, you know, if, if he thought that uh, the existence of Russia was being threatened, he could resort to nuclear weapons. And that would be far, far worse than any, you know, agreement to end this war in Ukraine, even if it meant giving up some Ukrainian territory. Um, you know, I, I do not think that what Putin did was justified. I, I think it is an atrocity, but I don't want even a, uh, an even worse outcome to result from this. So I, I think your instincts to be a pacifist in most cases are correct. And yeah, so that, that's what I'll, I wanted to say. Well, we don't know, do we? I mean, you may we don't right. know. There's no way of, of guessing. And uh, I, I, I just was have been so shocked by his statements uh, indicating his obsession with um, uh, being a, a latter day Peter the Great, you know, and, and reuniting all of the Slavic countries that he thinks belong together. Uh, he believes that culturally, you know, Russia is supposed to create another empire and and that seems to be his goal and in fact <clears throat> although i i i certainly believe that nato should not have expanded into some of the eastern european countries on the other hand i see why they wanted in because you know we've seen evidence that in fact they had reason to be afraid um but um, but I think you know NATO should not have expanded. I, I would have loved to see NATO disband when the WTO disbanded, and and replaced for the security of Europe could have been replaced with the OSCE. But then, of course, it was the CSCE. But it 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 could have you know we could have a, a different system of of security and and stability in Europe. Uh, but that didn't happen, and 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 it was a mistake. But I don't think it was a mistake at the level of really explaining Putin's motivation. I don't think he was. It was about NATO. I think it was about wanting to be Peter the Great. Well, I, I would, I would say that the expansion of NATO definitely did have an impact on his actions. But that's another discussion. But as far as being Peter the Great. Um, you know, Osama bin Laden wanted to establish a caliphate uh, that would take over most of the Middle East and beyond. Uh, he was never in the position to do that. And you, so you, you can have the ambition, but you also have to have the power. And Russia has demonstrated in this disgusting war that they don't. And their, their military power has always been overestimated, particularly during the Cold War, to justify the unending uh, uh, military buildup of the United States and its allies uh, and the expenditure of trillions of dollars on a Cold War that has been a disaster for humanity. So, um, 
that's kind of my take on it. But that's well well said, John. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. We can all be right on that one because we 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 really there's no way of showing. I think. Yeah. That's right. Are you, are you good, John? Do you have another question? I'm all set, yes. Thank you so much for coming. I really Thank you. It. I've enjoyed it so far. And I want to enjoy it some more a little while, if you will. Oh, <laughs> you betcha. You betcha. Are there any more audience questions? Or are you going to wait until after the broadcast to ask them? Um, Meta, thank you very much. We're going to end on a video of yours, number 100, uh, for the audience that I found very moving. Um, Mm -hmm. I am so grateful that we connected and we talked and, and you were so quick to respond. I, I really appreciate that. But moreover, I appreciate the work that you're doing. Thank I mean, you. it's a, a lifetime of peace activism. Um, it's just tremendous. And I hope to see you again and, and talk to you again. I, I, I really I'm so do. grateful to you. This has been, uh, I, I just, you know, it's always fun. <laughs> uh, but it's also flattering. So I appreciate that. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. And then we'll, mm -hmm. uh, we'll share the video for the uh, crowd at home here. Hi, this is chapter 100. And I have not been making any of these memoirs for a couple of weeks. It's been kind of a pause caused by two things or concerns. Number one is I've run out of scarves. As you may have noticed, I have sort of gotten into a scarf jag. I like to wear a different scarf every day, sort of to make it possible to tell these uh, segments apart when one is watching, but also just for a sense of renewal. And they're not very expensive, and I can buy a different one all the time. But I ran out. At Christmas, they were sending them to me five or six a day, and then they stopped. I think they felt they had fulfilled their obligation by making sure that everybody got all the scarves they'd ordered by Christmas. And I have several in the works, but they haven't been coming. So I don't have any fresh scarves. The second reason is that this is chapter 100, and I had decided that I was going to produce 100 chapters of my life. That should be enough for one life, and then stop. And so chapter 100 should be one humdinger. It should be, it should encompass the whole lifetimes, 87 years. It should be inspiring. It should thank everybody that I, I owe everything to. And, and it should uh, be a wonderful um, summation of what I think I've learned and what I could pass on to others. And unfortunately, I couldn't think of anything that, that good. I couldn't think of a way to sum up my whole life in a way that would be meaningful uh, at all. So I had decided I should wait until something occurred to me. But then the thought that kept going through my head was a line from T.S. Eliot, even part of a line. It was something like, in the silence after the Viaticum, the Viaticum being the last rites. And I kept thinking, this chapter 100 is the last rites, the end. And what do you do in the silence after the end? Well, I don't think my, my period of life after the end will be all that silent. I'm pretty busy. And sometimes 
people just lie in silence and other times people die rather quickly, get it over with efficiently and other times people go on and have even interesting and important things to happen after the viaticum. And I hope I'm in the final category, but most likely I think people just sort of um, what is the word? You end life not with a bang, but a whimper. You sort of go small scale uh, fizzling out. And, um, you know, you go to the doctor more often and you have more concerns about minor physical ailments and, and friendships and things like that. And I suppose that's most likely. So that's not a very good chapter 100. And I have decided something different that I will, I will try to have a chapter 100, but it can't really be my own because I'm not that inspiring. But I've, I've come to con the conclusion that life is going to go on for a little while, most likely. And, and therefore, uh, I won't stop at 100. I'll just keep going and all of these little trivial events that take place at the end of, of life will probably show up in the last phases of my memoir. Um, and then I've also decided, you see here, I have this scarf. I was in India in 1979 and 80, and I bought a lot of things including this, what well, is really green, but it looks blue on my screen, a green scarf that's really too fancy to wear. So I decided that the 100th chapter of my life should be pretty special. And therefore, this would be an occasion for me to show you my beautiful scarf, which I've only worn once or twice. So you can, in a way, call it a, a new scarf. It's certainly new to you. I haven't exposed it to my friends yet. That's the solution to my scarf problem as I await the arrival of another dozen or so scarves that are uh, have been ordered. But then, since the chapter 100 really ought to be kind of a special, and there ought to be an ending, a viaticum, even if life is going to go on in the silence or the noisiness that follows, and so instead of trying to sum up my own life from childhood to old age and, and this dusty and rust, uh, ruffles papers, you can't see them because I've hidden them from you, but I, he's pretty good about the fact that people shuffle off this earth and leave behind dusty piles of papers. And, um, so, I am going to refer to the poem that was going through my mind in the silence of after the viaticum. It's a poem called Animula by T.S. Eliot. And I'll read it to you because I think it, it, it really is a little better than I could have written for chapter 100. Ready? Issues from the hand of God, the simple soul, to a flat world of changing lights and noise, to light, dark, dry or damp, chilly or warm, moving between the legs of tables and of chairs, rising or falling, grasping at kisses and toys, 
advancing boldly, suddenly to take alarm, retreating to the corner of arm and knee, eager to be reassured, taking pleasure in the fragrant brilliance of the Christmas tree. Pleasure in the wind, the sunlight and the sea, studies the sunlit pattern on the floor and running stags around a silver tray, confounds the actual and the fanciful, content with playing cards and kings and queens, what the fairies do and what the servants say. The heavy burden of the growing soul perplexes and offends more day by day, week by week, offends and perplexes more with the imperatives of is and seems and may and may not desire and control the pain of living and the drug of dreams curl up the small soul in the window seat behind the Encyclopedia Britannica, issues from the hand of time, the simple soul, irresolute and selfish, misshapen, lame, unable to fare forward or retreat, fearing the warm reality, the offered good, denying the importunity of the blood, shadow of its own shadows, specter in its own gloom, leaving disordered papers in a dusty room, living first in the silence after the Viaticum. Pray for Gutierrez, avid of speed and power, for Boudin, blown to pieces, and for this one who made a great fortune and that one who went his own way. Pray Pray for Floret, by the boarhound slain between the yew trees. Pray for us now, and at the hour of our birth. And that was our interview with Meta Spencer. She's 92, and still, uh, still going strong. She has a YouTube channel to save the world. I urge you to check it out it has some really great stuff there's about 555 episodes to save the world on youtube she also has a website metaspencer.com and you can see her 100 videos about her life uh short reflective 5 to 35 minute on personal and global history from 1931 to the present it's been an honor to uh, interview meta spencer and thank you for taking part in North of 48. Bye.